four, three, two, one, zero, and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Dispatches, and I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico today with Reed Callanan, who is the founder and director of the Santa Fe Photographic Workshops. How are you doing today? Happy to be here with you. Awesome. Uh, so I've got a list of questions here for you, but the first one might, might be a curveball, and I, I figured out today that you and I have something in common that I had no idea, which was geology major. So where did that come from? Go back to the geology major days and, and uh, what was the plan at that point in your life? The plan was to be a geomorphologist, which is somebody who studies water flow. Okay. Because I've always lived around water. Interesting that I live in Santa Fe now. But growing up, I um, spent a lot of time on the water, Chesapeake Bay, um, Maryland, Annapolis area, and just had an affinity for water and water flow. Went to school in upstate New York, St. Lawrence University, typical freshman year, taking a bunch of classes, took introduction to geology as an elective and just fell in love and thought, this feels right for me. Mm -hmm. This is what I think I want to major in. And so basically decided at the end of that year, the freshman year, that I was going to become a geology major. The geology department at St. Lawrence was a very liberal, open-minded department run by a professor named Romy, and he didn't believe in grades. He believed in I like him. doing work and, um, and basically having to present that work in, um, in audio form, in photographic form, cool. in any, any kind of form that you felt was appropriate for the, the field of study. And so we weren't graded in the traditional, you know, A, B, C, D That's... process. So I think, I think as much as I liked the, the study of geology, I think his philosophy of, of education was something I also really enjoyed. So I joined that department as much to be with him and in his educational process as I did to study geology. So I went merrily through my sophomore year as a geology major, and then my junior year of college, I decided to go to Europe. Because Good move. This is something that I always wanted to do. My dad did it when he was in college, and he instilled in his kids this understanding of how travel is really important as an educational vehicle. Mm -hmm. And so I just knew before I even decided to go to St. Lawrence that my junior year, I'm going to go study abroad for my junior year. I didn't have a good language to support me in going to France or Italy or someplace like that, so I picked London okay, because I spoke the language. Yeah, And I found a college called Richmond College just outside of London that was a setup primarily for people like me who wanted to go and study for a year but um, wanted to do an interdisciplinary program. I couldn't, I couldn't mesh into a geology-based program in Great Britain because they just have a different structure and right. the, the credits wouldn't 
correlate back to the program in the States. So I ended up taking a Dickens class, a Chaucer class, <laughs> um, a cross-cultural pop uh, class, okay. and also a photography class. Uh -oh. this, was, this was the first Here's photo class that I did was with this woman, and I've forgotten her name, but it's, that's too bad because she was the one who inspired and instilled this love of photography. But to be in London with a camera that I was given as a gift to record my junior year abroad, it was a Pentax K1000. Oh yeah, the classic. Yep, <clears throat> great camera. My mom great. had one. Mm -hmm. So that was the start of it all. Basically, I fell in love with photography in Great Britain and spent a lot of time on the continent. Actually went to the Soviet Union on spring break. One of the first... Because everybody <laughs> goes to the, to the Soviet Union on spring break. This was in 1974. So and you were like a pioneering tourist. I was tourist one of the first, first people to get in. I was walking down the street in London and I saw a poster in a travel agency for a trip for British school teachers to go to Leningrad and Moscow. And I just, on a whim, opened the door and said, do you have any room on this trip and could I go? And they said, as a matter of fact, we have two or three seats left and you're not a teacher, we understand that, but yeah, if you pay the money, you can go. Oh, man. So in 1974, I went to uh, Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg, mm -hmm. and Moscow. It was a 10-day trip, and that was an amazing journey to go behind the Iron Curtain that early. They had just opened up Soviet Union for tourism, and they were only letting groups in, and they weren't prepared for Western visitors. Yeah. So the food was terrible, and the hotels were worse than that. But meeting the Russian people was amazing. And I spent my time with kids my age in the Soviet Union, and they all spoke English. So we would get on these tour buses with these English teachers, and we'd get off the bus, and the teachers would all go in a line to the left to go to the church or the museum, and I would get off the bus and go to the right and just take off. <clears throat> and in the first... 10 or 15 minutes of walking in the city, I would be approached by young people who spoke English and just wanted to know what I was doing there yeah, and who, who I was. You? Yeah, why are you here? And so I spent all my time just hanging out with these Russian young people and they, wanted, they just grilled me on culture in the States because at that point, it was the epicenter of the cultural world for them, sports, music, politics, they just wanted to know everything. And so every day, that's what I did. And photographed, I tried to photograph them, but I wasn't very good as a photographer at that point. And so the portraits are not memorable, but, I, the, I, but the, the memory of the time with them certainly is. I also think the metaphor of, I think most photographers early in life realize that they're the ones that are supposed to go right when they get off the bus. It's not necessarily where the pack is going and I think that's a good metaphor for being a photographer in general is mm -hmm. you seem to constantly be in positions where you kind of go, you know, I don't really know if anybody's gone over there before but I think I'm going to go. Do you think that you would have found photography had you stayed in the U.S.? No. You I think, think, you'd I, be I think it, took, it took going to London, it took taking that class I think if I had not gone to London, I would have been a geologist. You'd be right now studying how to get more water in California. 
Yeah. That would have been my mission at this point. Well, the ironic thing is I was going to study geology and was headed to a school to study geology when there was a problem with my transcript. My transcript was lost, actually. And the head of the admissions called my mom and said, uh, it's our fault. We lost like half of these incoming transcripts because we're moving our, our admissions department. And this was pre everything being digitized. And so she said, you've got to go somewhere for a semester before you can come here. So just go anywhere and take basic classes and then transfer here the following semester. And the place that I ended up was San Antonio College. And I took pictures during a flood and a journalism instructor saw them and boom. And I was like, I'm not going to be a geologist. I'm going to be a photographer. So I love hearing that story. So there's another, another part of the story. And I'll, I'll tell you quickly. So I get back after a year in... London to small town Canton, New York, upstate New York, where St. Lawrence is located. And I had the bug to photograph. And I was in this wonderful department that would allow me to do that. And each department at St. Lawrence had a dark room. There was a donor who loved photography and gave a bunch of money to St. Lawrence and said, I want part of this money used to build a dark room for every department. So the English that. department had one. The phys ed department had one, geology department had a darkroom. There weren't many people in the geology department that really wanted to use that darkroom. There was one fellow who was a year ahead of me who loved the darkroom work, and his name is Mark Clett. Oh. And so Mark had the darkroom the year that um, I returned to St. Lawrence, and he was about to graduate and go on to visual studies workshop. So he more or less handed the key to the darkroom over to me and said, here, it's yours for your senior year. Oh, nice. So Mark and I are still great friends, and I was just, just in Cuba with him in November on a special program that we did down there. So it's great to have that connection with Mark. And that was, you've been in photography now for 40-plus years. Mm-hmm, right. Wow, that's, when you're actually taking photographs, when you're in the field, is that a solitary pursuit, even though you're dealing with people and you're shooting portraits? Is it a place that you use to sort of disappear from your normal life? Or is it the complete opposite, where you look towards going into the field and the engagement with other people becomes the, the dominant thing? Because for me, even though I do people-based documentary work, being in the field is a sanctuary. I, I kind of am in my own little place, and even though I'm dealing and talking with people, I'm actually really in my little cave inside. For you, is it a solitary pursuit, or is it sort of group therapy? I would say, like you, it's a solitary pursuit. The, the projects that I'm working on right now are portraits on the streets of Mexico and Cuba. Okay. And I pretty much do it by myself, and it is that solitary get away from the rest of the world um, pursuit. So for me, it's, it's connecting with myself, but also it's in that process through the portrait making of working with people that, that are there in the streets. And when you're working, what do you think about? And because for me, people will look at what I'm photographing and they think, well, you clearly, you must be thinking about the person you're photographing in the light. And yeah, that's a part of it. But a lot of times when I'm working in between actually making photographs, I think about my father. I think about growing up in Wyoming. I think about all these things that seemingly at the time are unrelated, but they're not unrelated. I've learned that after all these years of all of this is the ingredients of what put me in that spot at that time. Are there 
themes that you find yourself thinking about or are you specifically focused 100% on subject matter? I'm focused, I wouldn't say 100% on subject matter, but I would, if, if you want to um, give a value to it, it's probably 60% on subject matter and 40% on being present, as present as I can to the situation. I photograph when I travel. I don't photograph around here. And that's mainly because, well, first of all, it's a choice. Yeah. And it's a choice based on time. And I'd rather spend my time here running the business, figuring out where, where the business is headed. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm home, as we are now, it's gardening, it's printing in the studio here, it's being present with Nina yeah. and a part, of, a part of my world in Santa Fe. So for whatever reason, photography doesn't pay, as far as I'm concerned, my photography doesn't play a major element in my life here. But when I travel, it that's, when it, that's when it, it rears up and grabs me and is an important part of, of my world and my life. And so, so much of it is, is to connect with the people that I meet. And then part of the process for me is taking prints back and having that second or that third experience with people with prints. And so I do it by taking a little Polaroid printer with me mm-hmm. and bringing back the little small prints. Mm-hmm. I do it by making prints here in the studio, nice prints with the Epson printer and taking back nice sure. eight and a half by 11 images to them. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the process of reconnecting with them through prints. And then another round of photographing happens. And I have found, as you would expect, that that second or that third round of portraits are more intimate, sure. more telling, there's trust. more powerful. Right. There's a trust. There's, there's this sense of, I've been given a gift by this guy, and I want to give a, a gift back. Mm-hmm. First time that you're photographing somebody, particularly a stranger, there isn't, isn't that connection of gift giving. But I think that taking a print back and giving that gift, it opens up maybe unspoken mm-hmm. of, hey, I'll, I'll give you more of myself now because you've given something valuable to me. I'm laughing because I did that exact thing up in Española last summer and photographed a bunch of guys who I don't think had ever been photographed before. And when I got out of the car on the second trip, I had this box of 17 by 25 prints, big ones. And I did those specifically to see what the, how crazy the reaction would be. And I opened the top of the box and pulled the first one out and showed the guy. And Amy said to me, what do you do? These, why would you make something that big for, for these guys? And I said, because, I, it, because it's that big, it's absurd. I want to take these up and see what happens. And the look on his face, and he turned around, and he immediately basically destroyed the print. But because he was so excited, he held it above his head, (laughs) and he was shaking it. And as he was shaking it, he was putting creases and folds in it. But they were so excited. And then the entire box of prints blew off the trunk of my car into a dirt lot, and they all scattered. (laughs) But from that moment on, the relationship with those guys completely changed. And they suddenly started calling me and emailing me and saying, hey, we're doing this you know, small party at someone's house and you should come. So I agree. I think, uh, I think uh, the second, third, fourth, fourth time, it just gets better and better and better. And occasionally I, you get lucky on that first time where you get something great. But when you started shooting, you, I, 
was doing a little research on you earlier today and I found this story really funny, which was about you were shooting, when you very first started, you were like, I'm gonna be a pro photographer and you were shooting for this real estate company. And that lasted about two weeks and you were like, I want no nothing to do with this. And right. you decided early on that you didn't wanna be a professional photographer. And I think that is, is a profoundly powerful idea to have very early on, but I think ultimately it leads to people making the best work because you're only shooting what you want and not what someone's telling you to do. Do you ever have any regrets about that? Or was it once you had made that decision, it was a done deal? Once I made that decision, then it was a very clear decision. It happened really quickly. I was lucky. I was fortunate that I got a really terrible job <laughs> the first time around. Yeah. If it, had, if it had been a little bit more pleasant and if I'd made some money at it, it might have taken me longer to figure mm -hmm. that out. But because it was so terrible, it was basically shooting 50 houses, the front of 50 houses in an eight-hour day. And they were all over town. This is in Baltimore. So I had to map out my, my route and then basically do drive-bys, roll the window down, slowly drive by the house, take two or three frames, and then on to the next house. And this was film. And I still had to then process the film and make prints. And I lasted two weeks and I said, if this is what being a professional photographer is, I want nothing to do with it. And at that point, I moved on. And that, that's been the case so many times in my life. I've just gotten lucky, I've gotten messages, and I listen to them, and then I move on. And I don't second guess myself, and I don't go back and beat myself up. It's, it's a lot about what I talk about when people come to the workshops. It's about being present and not worrying about what happened yesterday or what's going to happen tomorrow. And I guess I've said it enough times that now it has sunk in and I truly believe it. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes that happens. You're, you, if you use the words enough, then it really sinks into your soul and you can walk that walk and, and live that life. And so I would say I do that pretty well. Although right now, my life is really about next year because one of my jobs at the workshops is to plan the programming for next year and mm -hmm. think about the year after that. So I'm, I'm in April and May and June of 2016 right now. So I'm not living in the present in that sense, but right. I can't because right. you I've, got, you have to. I've got to build this program for next year. But for the most part, living in the present and not regretting decisions that I made yesterday or not even second-guessing myself is makes life easier. For sure. So I took the opposite route. I spent 10 years denying and then, and, then, <laughs> and then finally realized and quit and then forgot that I had realized and went back again. And then it finally like stuck. Like this is just not what I want to do. And I think sometimes people get wrapped up in the sense that you've got to be known as a certain thing. And to me, it's, I tell especially young photographers now, you don't need to be a photographer to be a photographer. You just want to make your own work. That's the key to this whole, this whole crazy game. I interviewed uh, Sarah Terry last week in LA, and she started a program called the Aftermath Program, which is about the aftermath of war and sort of that, the, the violence of war is half the story, and then you've got this other half. And every year, she puts together a grant program and a book that comes out, and they, they pick a body of work from another photographer around the world. And we were joking, and, and I said, you've basically built something to help the people who are kind of, in some way, your competitors. Because she's a documentary photographer, and she's giving a grant and a book to, to another documentary mm -hmm. photographer who kind of does the same thing. When I look at you 
working for 15 years in Maine at the Maine workshops and coming out to Santa Fe and starting the Santa Fe workshops, you're one of the same, you're one of those same people. You've spent your life facilitating the careers of other people. And did you ever think about that? Or was it just something, why, what possessed you to do that? Because I can, I have sort of a vague idea of how much work running the workshops would be mm -hmm. based solely on just having done a couple of workshops on my own in the past. It's an insane amount of work. So like I, I driving over here, I'm like, thank God there's people like you because it's an insane amount of work. Did you think about that when you went into it or it was just something I'm doing this? I didn't think about that aspect of it, of launching careers or, um, or giving people the tools to move on to careers in photography. Initially I did it because I loved the environment. When I went from that terrible job in real estate in Baltimore to the main workshops, right after college, um, the first summer that I was there in Maine, I was a work-study student. Actually, they call it the fellowship program. I thought that I had died and gone to heaven because I could live on the beautiful coast of Maine mm -hmm. and I could be living, eating, sleeping, drinking, breathing photography 24 hours a day. And I got to meet my heroes in photography. And not just meet them, I got to share my work with them. I got to hear them talk about their photography. I got to, to break bread with them. That first summer, um, I became friends with Paul Caponegro mm -hmm. and El Ernst Haas, Elliot Porter, Jay Maisel. There, there weren't better photographers it's the for me. It's the all-star team. Right. Yeah, for sure. It certainly is. Yeah. And so I thought to myself at the end of that first summer in Maine, I want to do this the rest of my life. I want to be in this environment, be in this creative environment, and have the world's best photographers come to my doorstep and be able to learn from them. I never thought at that point that I wanted to start my own workshop. That didn't happen until I was a good 10 years into mm -hmm. the main workshop experience. Then it started to dawn on me that I could make a career of this. I could, I could continue this. I could do this on my own at some point. But the first couple of years, I was just living in the present, being totally enamored with living where I lived mm -hmm. and having these people come on a steady basis. The coast of Maine is an isolating experience in January, February, March, yeah. April. Mm -hmm. And most people don't survive it because it is so isolating and it's so cold and you don't get influence from the outside world. I mean, back in those days, there wasn't an internet. There, there weren't the ways that we have today to stay connected digitally and electronically with the right. world. Yep. So newspapers and televisions were kind of a connection but I was really fortunate in that there was a steady stream every week or every month in the resident program. There was a new batch of people coming in, young yeah. people. They were your human internet. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. I would get down to the, um, the dark room at 6 o'clock in the morning. And my job was at, at that point early on was the dark room manager. And I would open up the door and I basically do the first thing I did was to get the wood stove going because we, we heated with wood stoves. Oh, man. So it would be frigidly cold, like below zero, when I opened up the door. Uh, inside was warm enough to keep the chemicals from freezing, but barely. Barely. So it took an hour to, to light two or three wood stoves to get the darkrooms up to a comfortable temperature. And then we had a, a, a bath of water that sat on the wood stove, and we put the, the steel tanks 
in the wood stove to get it up to 68 degrees for processing, and for processing the yeah. film and then run over to the sink and, and process your film. They were great days. And I was there from six in the morning to closing, which oftentimes was midnight. And if people want to stay and print till two or three, I would typically say, yes, I'll, I'll stay and do it. So talk about eating, sleeping, drinking, yeah. breathing, photography. I did it. It's a lifestyle, not a, not a job necessarily. Mm -hmm. So then you left Maine, you came to Santa Fe, you founded the Santa Fe Workshops, which just um, were 25, 6? 25 years last year, so we're in a 26th year. 26th year. Do you remember the first workshop that you ran at Santa Fe, the first instructor? There was, it was a series of workshops. Okay. There wasn't a first workshop, it was a first summer season. That was, that was in 1990, and we ran... Four workshops the first week, and I can't remember who were in those four workshops, but I do remember that in that first summer, Sam Abel was here and has taught every year since. Yeah. John Weiss was part of that first summer, and John, although he didn't teach this year, he's taught pretty much every year with us at the workshops. Greg Heisler was in that first summer. Nick Nichols was in that first summer. Rodney Smith was in that first summer. These are all people that I had made connections with and friendships with in Maine, and when I decided to leave Maine and go to Santa Fe, uh, I asked them if they'd come out and support me. And I remember calling Sam Abel at Geographic at that point and asking him if he would come out and teach in Santa Fe. And he said that it really pained him to say no, but he was on assignment for Geographic. He had a couple of assignments that were in the works, and he just didn't have the time to do it. And I said... I'm sorry, we'll miss you, but I understand. Two days later, he called back and he said, Reed, I've changed my mind. I need to be there for you, to support you and the workshops, and I'm going to rearrange things, and, and I will be there for you that first summer. And he was, and his class filled up, and he's been teaching at the workshops every year since. And I, and I think that having Sam and having Greg Heisler and having Nick Nichols and having Rodney Smith part of that first summer season um, gave us a legitimacy mm -hmm. that we wouldn't have had otherwise. We had Santa Fe to sell, which was huge. Mm -hmm. It still is. Yep. We had Eastman Kodak Company. Ray Dumoulin gave um, us $50,000 to Ray. start the workshops. St. Ray. St. Ray. And that, without that, it wouldn't have happened. And so Ray Dumoulin, Eastman Kodak Company... The instructors that we had the first summer, the fact that we were in Santa Fe, that made us a viable operation in our first year. And as you know, most businesses fail in the first... First you know, couple of years, first five first, years. First five years. Mm -hmm. And we also got lucky in that Santa Fe just was becoming incredibly popular as a world destination. Mm -hmm. Santa Fe style, Santa Fe cuisine, Santa Fe was on traveler's tongues sure. at that point. And so timing is everything, and location, location, location is also critically important. So we hit it just right. So one of the things that, that's happened to me through the years is traveling around the world, and I worked for as a photographer, and I worked for Kodak, and, and then I went back to photography, and now I work for Blurb, all that. But I can't tell you how many people I've run into that were either showing me work or talking about some breakthrough that they had made, and it ties back to a class at Santa Fe Workshops. Like I was, nice. Sarah Terry took Sam Abel's 
project workshop when mm -hmm. she first got into photography. And so it's happened a million times. And again, I didn't really start thinking about that until I was, yesterday when I said, hey, can I do an interview with you? And then thinking about how many times that happened, it's a, it's a testament to that, to, to you and the workshops. So this next question is a little ethereal maybe, but I think it's important. Purposely living a creative life. So when you departed from ge uh, geology and you mm -hmm. went into photography, I think that when someone purposely says, I'm going to go into this creative field, it's, it's, it's a significant move because the creative world is not necessarily understood by the mainstream world. And if you look at the financial world, for example, the financial world always looked at the creative fields and the, and the creative community or a part of culture as like, eh, it's kind of fluff on the side. But now they're starting to realize that the creative fields are actually responsible for a significant amount of the money that's basically transferring around the world. So where do you think, people who live creative lives, where do you think they fit in? And do they have a responsibility as a creative to like take chances, stir the pot, do what they're not supposed to do to kind of <laughs> counterbalance the people who are from more of a, the structured side of life? Well, I'll take the, the second part of the question first, which is absolutely yes. It is definitely up to creative people to, to counterbalance all the, all the other folks that are out there living a more linear, more mm -hmm. rational life. We have, you have to have balance in, in life, and that's one of the things that, that I adhere to and live by is, is balance as much as possible. And the balance means you have the yin and the yang, you have both. And so it is certainly up to the more creative people. And I think everybody has a, a level of creativity in them. It just, it's up to them to decide how much to focus on, mm -hmm. how much to bring it out. Creativity is not something that totally comes inherently and innately to people. There are people that are certainly much more creative than other people. And we both know those people and mm -hmm. we admire them because they, everything they do is creative. And I, I can't say that everything I do is creative. I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm rationally based in many ways. The business survives because of that business instinct that I have. But I also live a creative life as well. So for me, having the balance is important. And I think from a global standpoint, having balance between the creative folks who are pushing the envelope and pushing the way that we see the world and we think about the world is critically important. If, if, if they weren't there, the whole thing would be out of balance and mm -hmm. we'd be in much more trouble than we are right now. And we'd be boring. <laughs> right. It'd be so boring. <laughs> it would be. All the houses would look the same. We'd be eating mm -hmm. the same food. Yeah, we, I think we need crazy people. I think mm -hmm. it's one of the things that drives me crazy is sometimes photographers don't understand that they have this permission slip to be eccentric or to do strange things because they're, people look and go, oh, you're a photographer, you're an artist. And artists can do whatever they want and get away with it because you're the, you're the crazy guy at the edge of the party. Mm -hmm. if you... One of the reasons that I, just, just to, to go back to this idea of how I chose and why I chose to be involved in this, this creative life, part of the reason was because I wanted to be around people that were much more creative than, than I was. And I saw that the very first summer that I was in Maine. I was around photographers that were so much more creative. I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine how they could make the pictures that they did. I couldn't imagine how they could be that creative in the darkroom. Mm -hmm. And I realized, boy, I've, I've got a lot to learn 
and I want to be around these kind of people all the time to inspire me and push me and make me think about things differently. I don't, I don't think of myself as an um, overly creative person, but I want to be around creative people because it makes me more creative. Sure. So it's one of, the, one of the reasons why I love being a part of the workshop experience is because there's this constant flow of people that come into our programs and they all are living a creative life for a week. They may not be very creative in their lives outside of this workshop, this workshop week, but when they come to the workshops, mm -hmm. any workshop, whether it's Maine or Santa Fe or Palm Beach or Julia's in, in LA, they have made a decision, put a stake in the ground to, for a length of time, whether it's a four day or a five day or a six day workshop, to, to live a photographic life and to live a life of being creative. And that changes the way that they go about their day. Sure. And that's fun to see, that twinkle in their eye, that, that smile of appreciation and acceptance is really wonderful to see. And that keeps me going. That's, there are a lot of things that keep me going in this business that I run, and that's certainly one of the big ones, is just to, to see that and to be around that energy from these people all the time. I'm very fortunate. What is one thing that you don't have that you really wish you have or you need? It could be anything. It could be a physical object. It could be a spiritual thing. It could be free time. It's the one thing that you don't have that you find yourself saying, oh, I wish I had. Well, if, if it's the one thing, I don't know the answer to that one thing. Um, but when you first phrased the question to me, the thing that I thought of is Spanish. You wish you spoke Spanish. I don't have Spanish. I don't have conversational Spanish. And that's one of my huge regrets. It's not too late, but it, it would, for me, it would take an immersion program. I would mm -hmm. have to go for a month and go to a Spanish-speaking village where there were no English-speaking people there. Yeah. I know a lot of vocabulary. I can't put it together. I'm not conversational. And that's embarrassing to me because I run a program in San Miguel. I run a program in Havana, Cuba. <laughs> I go to Mexico on holiday whenever I get a chance. And I can't converse conversationally yeah. with the people there. And that's an embarrassment. And so that's one thing that... That's a great I, answer. And I really you, miss. you know, uh, you're living in Santa, and Santa Fe. And Santa Fe too. That's exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I could practice all the time if I wanted to. You could be But speaking. I'm not good at languages, or I tell myself I'm not good at languages, which is not a good thing to start with. And my sister, Martha, who lives here in town, is fluent in Portuguese and French and certainly English. And I think she speaks a little bit of Spanish as well. Languages come easy to her, they don't come easy to me. That's not even fair. She speaks all those languages. I, know. I wouldn't. I would quit talking to her. She's, <laughs> she sounds terrible. So the last question is: When you look at people, these creative people that you've spent your life around, and you look at instructors that have come through the workshops, and like you said, you've now got programs in Cuba, and Mexico, and Santa Fe, and you're doing these partnerships with the Geographic, where the workshops are all over the world. So you're running into a, a pretty amazingly diverse group of creatives. Right. Mm -hmm. Are there any single word descriptions that would be consistent through these groups of people? Obviously, creative would be one of those words, but like what makes someone not just a great image maker, a great artist, but someone who can translate that and teach to someone else? Are there any words that you would like lump out there to classify? 
or labeled these people with? Some of the things that come to mind are people that have their ego in check. Mm -hmm. I think ego gets in the way of being a truly creative person and being able to share that with other people. So that's one thing. Introspective is another that I think everybody shares that are truly creative people all the time. That's another thing is, is they are creative all the time. I'm not creative all the time. I can be and I choose to be, but there are people, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Opelenik is one that I think of that I've known for, forever. I met Elizabeth at the Maine workshops and, and worked with her through many years at Maine. She started teaching in Maine. She's teaching for us all over the place. She is one of the, the most creative people that I know. And one thing about Elizabeth is she's always creative. Everything she does, she's creative. Mm -hmm. Keith Carter, an amazing creative yeah. oh, genius. Yeah. And everything that Keith does is creative. So that, that's another attribute, I think, of, of these creative geniuses, that they are creative all the time in everything that they do in life. So there's, there's no on-off switch. Yeah, it is who they in, are. In that process. They, they, they breathe it all the time. And I think also curiosity is something that they all share. They're just curious about everything in the world. Mm -hmm. People, food events, experiences, they're risk takers, they put themselves out there, they're verbally articulate. Mm -hmm. You can't be a teacher if you can't speak about the process that you know. Part of my job as the director of the workshops is to find photographers that are good teachers. And that necessarily doesn't always happen. Sure. Just because you're a great photographer doesn't mean you're a great teacher. Yeah. You've got to be articulate. You've got to have your ego in check. You've got to be willing to share of yourself. And so I have to find out through my channels, mm -hmm. my networks, um, about these people. And talking to them on the phone certainly helps. But that's only one little window on who they are. So it's important to find the people that are willing to share. Mm -hmm. And if you're willing to share and you're open to, you know, the experience and the process of what happens in a workshop, then you've, you've got a good leg up on being a good teacher. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. That was great. It was my pleasure, Dan. Great talking with you. And uh, I'm sure the audience is going to dive into this one for sure. So thanks again. You're welcome. My pleasure.